0: Is there any lady here who has a pocket mirror in their purse or a purse mirror? No, we're past that age in history. I think. Perfect. Woohoo. <clears throat> so, this is important because I'm a preacher. And my job as a preacher. Is to proclaim to you the word of God. And so, what it's easy to do as a preacher, and it's easy as a church person to think that your preacher is doing, is absolving himself or not including himself in what he's saying to you. And, brothers and sisters, I think many of you know by now that I do not have it all together all the time, I am a sinner. And I am in need of grace. And so this this passage is a powerful passage. Before the service, I was chatting with some, and and I said, I'm sorry you came on this Sunday. And they said, why are you going to preach about sin? And I said, no, sin's easy. I'm preaching about something much harder, forgiveness. This chapter is all about forgiveness. Sin comes natural. But the fight against it does not. So let's look at Matthew 18. I I wanted to have us look at the whole chapter. Because it's only in looking at the whole chapter that you get past the atomistic reduction of this passage to, to judicial procedure. And you see what's really at play here is the heart of God for how we as disciples of Christ should be. So I invite you, look with me please at Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 1 as we read this chapter in its entirety. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell. Of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So... Also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Be with us as we reflect upon it. Grant that by your spirit we would hate our sin more than the sin of others. And that we would humble ourselves and forgive. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this passage is all about forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration. And the last verse of this passage stands in, in, in stark contrast to much of what we want to believe. So shocking, so scandalous, so at odds with what we want to be true, that we oftentimes go to great lengths to downplay what Jesus says here as if he's not really saying what he's saying. But the teaching of Jesus is remarkably consistent. Forgiveness is not an option. A Christian is a person who is, in virtue of having been forgiven, a conduit of forgiveness themselves. As J.C. Ryle once wrote, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Period. Jesus, having earlier taught on the subject of prayer, Back in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, we just repeated it a little earlier in our service, he says this, Lord, how shall we pray? And Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And along this whole way, everyone's going, yes, yes, oh, God, absolutely. Our uh, Father in heaven, mm-hmm. hallowed be, your name is Holy Lord, holy, holy. Hallowed be thy name, thy, thy kingdom come. Oh, I can't wait for that kingdom to come. Get rid of those evildoers. Oh, will be thine. Oh, give us our daily bread. Oh, I need, I need food. And forgive us our debts. As we have forgiven our debtors. And there's something about the way he constructs that sentence, that clause, that you can tell immediately the people went from, Oh, yes, 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 Lord. As I have? And you want to know why I'm very, very, very comfortable saying that that's exactly what their response was? Because hear how the Lord's Prayer ends. And lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the end of verse 13, Matthew 5, 13. And what is the first word of Matthew 5, 14? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you yours. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. In other words, Jesus has just prayed what is undoubtedly one of the most glorious prayers. But the only clause that he believes it's necessary for him to offer immediate commentary on is the one about forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? And that's undoubtedly because that's the one that was the sticking point for his people. Because his audience is no different than our audience. People don't like to forgive. The question of Peter Lord, how many times must I forgive? Is birthed out of a simultaneous desire to, to obey the commandment to forgive, but at the same time hold on to the right to let someone go, to discard someone who has offended me one too many times. And that is not a unique phenomenon, that is deep within the heart of every fallen person. We are sinners, all of us. In Luke 17, our Lord understands that that propensity to to want to discard someone, that propensity to be willing to say, you know what, forget you, is so deep that he begins his statement on the need to forgive by saying, watch yourselves. Luke 17.3, uh, var- various versions have it different. Be on guard, guard yourselves, watch yourselves, Take he- pay attention to yourselves. But the idea is this. What I'm about to tell you to do is not gonna come natural to you and your natural flesh is going to find a way to deceive you and lead you astray so that you think you don't need to do it in whatever circumstance. Your, your situation is so unique and you were hurt so grievously that, that, that you don't need to do it. And he's saying, watch yourselves because that's not true. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, whoa, talk about upping the ante. With Matthew, it's just if he sins against me seven times. Here, it's seven times in a day. Can you imagine? We'd be sitting here going, someone who's doing that seven times in a day, they are exploiting the Bible's commandment to forgive. So I don't need to. But yet, Jesus says, if they sin against you seven times in a day, and turn seven times in a day, you must forgive him. Jesus is passionate about forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Why? Because that is the essence of his ministry. That is what he came to do. We learn that in 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus came to reconcile. And the gospel is the message of reconciliation and this thing we're doing is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is at the heart of the Christian faith and it is to be at the heart of the Christian life. Even though it is hard. Don't get me wrong, this passage is teaching us to hate sin. It's teaching us to hate our sin. This passage is is calling us to hate our sin more than we hate the sin of others. This passage is calling us to see our sin as more egregious than whatever the sin of others might be. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and true. So in other words, what he's about to say had, had become kind of a slogan. And he says it's trustworthy and true that, that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners And I am the foremost. People get get, get turned all sideways. Like Paul is hereby saying, the Holy Spirit is saying that Paul is the greatest sinner ever. But no, he's not. He's saying it's a saying that's true and we should all have as our motto. That's the whole gist of this parable of the unforgiving servant. You, I, I'm the one who owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. What does that even mean? Jesus is telling a parable and he wants to create an impression and he wants to make an effect. So he pulls out an absurd number. 10,000 talents was, as as a matter of fact, about one-third of Rome's annual revenue, okay? It's an absurd number. It would be like me saying someone owed $10 trillion. No, no one's gonna owe, no one has $10 trillion to loan, and no one's gonna loan someone $10 trillion. It's an absurd number to make a point that the debt this person owes is obscene and absurdly high and I'm that person we are each of us that person and this guy goes outside and it says he the, the, the language of this passage is, is astonishing it says that he, uh, he goes outside and, and, and he finds, in verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants. And we don't know, does that mean he hunted for him? If so, he's, he's vicious. Or did he just happen chance upon him? In which case, he's reflexively unmerciful and ruthless. Either way, he's a terrible person but he finds this person who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, oftentimes I've heard this passage preached and it makes it sound like the debt someone owes you is nothing. That's not what this passage is saying. A denarius was about a day's wage. So whatever age, whatever civilization you're in, Think of a day's wage. And this guy owes our person here a hundred denarii, which is equivalent to about a hundred days of wages. If someone owes you basically four months of pay, you want it. That is a big debt. And that's just it. That's what Jesus is saying. The things that this person has done to me to accrue a debt of this size are real and they're substantial and they're painful. And yet, and yet, whatever it is, it absolutely pales in comparison to the debt that I owe. This passage only makes sense if you see that this passage is telling you you must see your sin for what it is, which is absolute hostility to the purpose, plan, and leadership of God. And therefore, because of your sin, you have a debt that is far greater than anyone can possibly have towards you and because you have been forgiven by the father he calls you to model his reconciling heart and be reconciled to others this passage goes so far in our in its call for us to hate our sin that there are two things in that are uniquely uh Interesting. First, Jesus uses the hyperbole of basically self mutilation. Cut off your hands and your feet if necessary. Do you see your sin as so dangerous and hostile to your soul that Jesus's metaphor would even make sense? Are you prepared to take drastic measures? To get rid of the sin and the opportunities and the temptations for it. I'm reminded of the it's an old movie now, but fireproof, where, where Kurt Cameron's character is struggling with online pornography. And he just can't seem to get over it. So what does he do? He throws away his computer. Oh, well, that's a drastic measure. Of course it is. Cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. Tear out your eye. Jesus is calling us to see that our sin is no little picadillo. Our sin is absolute poison to our soul. And what's more, my sin is so bad that I better pay attention and I better be careful that I don't lay before someone else, one of these little ones. And and elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus makes clear that by little ones, he's referring to the common person who has no clout, no social standing, just the kind of person who, if you're a social elite, you think is just part of the rabble mass and they don't matter. And Jesus is saying The child I just set before you, which typifies the little person who in the eyes of the world doesn't matter, they matter to me. And if you cause one of them to sin, it would be better for you to be drowned in the ocean. Whoa. Do you see how it's calling you then to say, I best be careful that I don't cause this, in the eyes of the world, insignificant person to sin? that I don't tempt them, that I don't goad them, that I don't set before them an example that teaches falsely. Do you see that? And this passage, we, we so often reduce Matthew 18 to, it, it's a byword for judicial process. As if, we quote, we cite, we reference Matthew 18 as shorthand for what do I have to do so I can get this person who offended me? And that is so wrong. It is such a shame that that is what we have done. You see, the Bible already tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that it is better, it is absolutely better that you be defrauded that you be wronged that I be defrauded that I be wronged then that the name of Christ be dismirched. the Bible teaches us that the the vindication of my name the protection of my rights especially my ego is not a concern of Jesus it's better for you to be defrauded than to disperse the name of Christ. So if Jesus has already made it clear that it's better for me to be defrauded, then what's going on here? What's the point? Am I, am I to go after this person in, in, in verse uh, verse uh, uh, 18 to try to get them? No. Not at all. You see... Jesus has just given us an example in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And when he finds it, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never Went astray. Fast forward to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go. Do you see that what he's calling us to do here is to model the shepherd of the verse just before and to go? This is not the comprehensive teaching on forgiveness and and other passages. There are many Christians who who will hold on to their bitterness by by referencing and citing other passages that, that, that seem to put repentance as the necessary precursor. So as long as they aren't repenting, I can just hold on. And Jesus here says, if they sin against you, you go. You don't you don't wait for them. You, you don't wait for them to feel bad. You go. And and why is that? Is it because I must get my ego vindicated? I must, they, they, you know, they told me I did an okay job on this work project, but I thought I did a great job, and so I'm mad, and oh boy, they better vindicate my ego. No. It's because sin always leads to death. The trajectory of sin is always death. And sin hardens. And the person who has sinned is in this parable, the sheep who has gone astray. You see, even a little sin is a little step away. It's a little apostasy. And don't you know, that's how people fall away. Very rarely does anybody just have this cataclysmic moment where all the world just crashes down. It happens. But most people apostasize one step at a time as slowly but surely they have cirrhosis of the heart and their heart just becomes callous And dead, and they never notice it until they're gone. And so, what we're being called to in Matthew 18 is I've been offended, I've been wronged, and your sin is a threat to your soul, and it's a threat to our community, and it's a threat, and I'm to go like the shepherd seeking to reclaim the lost sheep. It's not about my rights. It's about bearing one another's burdens. It's about caring for your brother or sister. It's about having the heart of God to seek reconciliation. But our culture has influenced us in a number of negative ways. In a number of ways that make applying this passage hard. The first, I would say, is we have a culture, this therapeutic culture that has created a climate of chronic offense where, where, where people nowadays are, are, are among the least resilient we've ever had. And any little hiccup in life really sets them off. And there are people who are just seemingly chronically offended. And that stands in stark contrast to to what the Bible calls us to, which is to not be easily offended. We we are called to have thick skin. We we are called to, to bear with one another. And bearing with means the unpleasantness of their stuff. But this culture of chronic offense it it's it's based upon the previous notion of, of of the psychologizing of all of life and the elevation of wants and the enshrinement of those wants into needs so that the things i want i want to be treated with respect you all are sitting there probably going you deserve that everyone deserves that do i I want that. And it's been elevated and enshrined to the level of need. And right there, as soon as I need something, what does it say about the person who's withholding from me that which I need? It's a form of cruelty, isn't it? And you see the language now in our culture on the economic front. We need food to live, don't we? So how dare you charge people for it? This leads us to find offense at the smallest of things. This causes us to become triggered or angry at the slightest perceived eye roll. And that's not Christian. What is Christian is to develop a thick skin. Not, not a, not a calloused skin that doesn't care, but a skin that lets stuff roll off their back like water off of a duck's. It keeps no record of wrongs is what love says. But yet we keep long records of wrongs, don't we? Second, this this thing that's emerged that's caused this passage to be difficult to apply is there's this confusion of offending somebody or angering somebody and sinning against them. I'd been married a good long time and I had been a pastor or a, a chaplain for a number of years and I had already counseled nearly 2000 people. When in 2010 I met I met this pastor of a PCA church in Maryland and he's now retired and he has not written anything but he had the most impressive puritan library I've ever seen. But he's he said that the problem he'd encountered with most people nowadays is that they either can't or won't distinguish between being angered and being wronged. And there's a difference. Guys, just because your wife doesn't immediately grasp that you're interested doesn't mean she sinned against you. Ladies, just because your husband doesn't respond with the amount or the degree of enthusiasm you think he should over the dinner you cook, doesn't mean he sinned against you. Children, just because your parents tell you, no, you can't have that sleepover, does not mean they've sinned against you employees, just because your employer says, stop doing what you're doing and do what I want you to do, does not mean they have sinned against you. Part of the problem is we have this culture of egalitarianism where we're all social equals. And each of us would would do well to look at our larger catechism Specifically, questions 123 through 133, and, and it's exposition of the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother, but it goes far beyond moms and dads and children, and it's, it's the foundation for the entire society's relational structure. And, and it uses language that is totally biblical, but totally ridiculous to our modern mind. You see, you are not equals with everybody. Some people you relate to as a social superior. And some people you're a social inferior. And other people you're a peer with. And the things owed depends. A superior does not owe the same things as an inferior or an equal. And this sounds crazy. But it's biblical. I encourage you, check it out. But learn to differentiate between your personal expectations and sin. And that begs the question, this passage is all about sin, when your brother sins against you. It doesn't say when he makes you angry. When he sins against you, okay, what is sin? Sin. Question 14 of the Shorter Catechism. Anyone care to spout it out? I have two officer trainees who just got tested yesterday. They should know it well. That's right. Thank you, honey. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto. That means the things God says to do, you don't do. Or transgression of. That means the things he tells you not to do, you do do. The law of God. So not doing or doing whatever in its case may be what God says to do. So when it comes to sin, the standard is God's law. It is not Ben's law. It is not I expect, and you have transgressed the law of Ben. You are guilty. And I'm angered and provoked because you did this or didn't do that. And, And we must resist elevating our law And replacing God's law with ours as if our expectations and our feelings are the arbiters and determiners of truth. And they're not. Have you noticed in the world all this this, this, in this woke culture? This there's no making a case, it's just rage. And the one who can cry the hardest or yell the loudest or have the most spit come out of their mouth when they're shouting, they're the victor. And that's rubbish. You you, you see, a key part of discipleship is is not just saying, hey, you you made so-and-so angry, therefore you've wronged them and need to go seek forgiveness, Part of discipleship is helping people say, yes, you're angry, but ought you to have been? That's the part that's missing. Ought you to have been? Not is it realistic that you were, it's ought you to have been. Ought you to have been angry at your wife when she didn't do this? Ought you to have been Angry at your husband because you had a dream in which he did something. (laughs) Ought you. Ought you to have called your employer a jerk because they didn't want you doing project X, they wanted you doing project Y. That's the missing part. So, the other thing that makes this passage hard is thinking that, okay, Ben, you've done a great job of pointing out that we need to differentiate between sins and just angerings. That is true. But there's a, a propensity, and, and this, is where, this, is, this, is, this is especially, just to give you a window of, of vulnerability, this is where I go. my sinful tendency is to then say, Deuteronomy 16.20 says, justice and only justice must be your guide. And here's the problem. That verse is absolutely 100% right in its context. It's a court. And the courts of the church and the courts of society and the and 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 the passing of laws and all that jazz, they must be concerned only with the facts. And how upset you are doesn't matter. But Matthew 18 is not talking about court. He's talking about life together. And right and wrong usually doesn't matter. Okay, I spoke with a tone that my wife took as offensive and now she's mad and I didn't mean to offend you and none of the words that I said were, were objectively inappropriate, wrong, so, 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 so suck an egg. and that would be evil. Because here's why. If I've inadvertently done something, it's not sin. And, 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 and maybe, yes, she shouldn't have an expectation that just led her to be angry that I violated it. But I've done something unintentionally, and if I don't, if I don't, Take the role of the shepherd. And if I don't obey the command to go, just go, go. Have I not left the door open then for her own sin to harden her heart? As she accumulates bitterness, as she accumulates resentment, and do I just stand there and let it happen? No, I better not, or else I'm the evildoer. In Philippians, we are treated to such an episode. In Philippians 4, 2 and 3, the apostle references, he he names two names, and I can't imagine how they felt when he did this, when they were sitting there in the church, and this letter was read the first time, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. How do you think they felt when their names were, (laughs) I bet it was an uncomfortable moment. I'm not an apostle, so I will not take an apostle's prerogative and I will not name names. Okay, but he does this And, and, and he says, help these women who have labored side by side with me. And their names are written in the book of life. Now, n- notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say they're at loggerheads, and I want you to form a commission to investigate and see, did one of them go to the other privately? And did they then take two people? Now, you've got to find which one did the wrong and throw one of those lousy bums out. No. He doesn't say find who's at fault, find who's the smart one and who's the not smart one, find who, who's the selfish. and who, He doesn't say that at all. What does he say? Help them agree. Help them agree. Why? Because they've, labored long and hard in the gospel and their names are written in the book of life. In other words, he undoes what we do all the time. When someone opposes us, we get super quick to say, and there are these people, Paul acknowledges it, there are servants of Satan in the church, but we love going right to that. That the person who opposes us is clearly in league with the devil. Paul here, he reminds us they're written in heaven and they've labored for the gospel. Help them agree for their sakes and for the church's sake. So, brothers and sisters, hate your sin most of all. My sin is the worst sin. And I need to take great pains to kill the sin, to fight it in myself, and and to make sure that I don't even accidentally put before someone a stumbling block over which they trip and their heart slowly and incrementally becomes calloused. Instead, I must pursue. Pursue. And not pursue to strangle the life until I exact my pursue. that there might be reconciliation. Is that your heart? That needs to be. It needs to be mine. And so, I say to you, if you have wronged me or violated the law of Ben, I forgive you. And if I've wronged you or violated the law of you, I ask you to forgive me. And if the person sitting next to you has wronged you or violated the law of you, go to them. and Seek forgiveness or implore them to to repent. That you might find reconciliation. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have forgiven my 10,000 talent debt. I am not worthy. Forgive me for being slow to forgive a hundred denarii debt. Grant that we would love each other and see each other as the guardians of our souls. That we would prize reconciliation and forgiveness far more than we prize being right. Be with us, Lord. We need you. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen.